My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. We are in the middle of our series on rattlesnake roundups in the Southeast, where we have multiple guests from agencies, snake biologists, talking all about kind of the history of of rattlesnake roundups in the Southeast region um, and the animals that are the focus uh, of those. And so today I'm uh, happy to be here talking to Daniel Sollenberger. Uh, he currently works for Georgia DNR. And I, uh, I think I first met Daniel, I don't know how many years ago now, but um, I live up in the, the Southern Appalachians, as, as many of you know. And Daniel was up in this part of the world um, working and uh, doing some, some research. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. But we ended up meeting at a mutual friend's house and uh, and then it's just kind of come together where he's now the, the state herpetologist in the state of Georgia. So we get to yeah. know, work together on a variety of projects. So welcome, Daniel. Yeah. You know, we, we actually met um, briefly at Western Carolina university. You did a, uh, a seminar talk and um, I think oh, we okay. met for the yeah. first time there right before that. Yeah. And and I'm actually going back in a couple of weeks to do that same seminar series myself. Oh, good. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Now, I, yeah. I barely remember. I mean, I remember giving that talk, but um, that was in uh, Dr. Uh, Peshman's lab. Is that right? Or he invited me. Yeah, to that's right. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was uh, probably uh, Dr. Peshman would have would have been uh, maybe the one to invite you to come do that. And um, yeah, I was talking about, you know, the Orient Society's mission and and some, you know, conservation projects y'all work on. And yeah, that was, uh, oh gosh, probably like 11 or 12 years ago now or something. Wow. Yeah, that seems like a lifetime. That's back when, when Orient Society just, just had started. So, or not long after. Yeah. So well, that's great. Thanks for uh, reminding me. I probably met a lot of them. I'm, I'm also horrible when I meet people that I, I, you know, until I interact with them, like we interacted that night with a beer in our hands around a campfire, I oftentimes don't remember <laughs> people. So I apologize to anybody listening who I don't remember. But anyways, great. Well, I like to, uh, I like to kind of kick off the, uh, the podcast with uh, learning a little bit about our guests and, and I typically I like to start at the very beginning. So, um, you know, and what I, I'd like to hear is is kind of your story about how did you originally get into reptiles and amphibians more generally, maybe snakes specifically. I mean, is this something that that you kind of had throughout your life? Something that that you came into later in life? How, how did that all come together for you? Um, well, I mean, it definitely started when I was really young. Um, I grew up in in 
kind of middle Georgia, uh, well, uh, Henry County, which is now like one of the fastest growing counties in the nation. But um, at the time, it was still fairly rural, and uh, we did a lot of hunting and fishing. My dad would take us out a lot, and my my grandfather, Papa, would take us a lot outside. And um, you know, there there were always you run into to various critters while you're out um, hunting or something, and and so you know. I was always catching frogs while we were outside or looking for, for salamanders while we were trout fishing in the mountains. And, um, you know, it, it goes back, you know, into my oldest memories. Um, I still remember the very first snake that I saw, uh, was a, a water snake, um, hiking at, um, I'll say hiking, just kind of walking a small trail around a lake at, uh, Reynolds nature preserve in Clayton County with Pawpaw. And, um, he actually knew what it was. He knew, he knew a lot about natural history that, that a lot of people, um, don't know, you know, he grew up in North Alabama doing a lot of the same. And, um, he was one of the few people of that generation that I met that really, um, knew a lot about various, you know, non-game things, birds and reptiles and things. And, um, you know, so he taught me sort of some of the earliest things I knew and, uh, yeah, it just grew from there. I don't, I was a dinosaur kid. And so I don't know if it was like, you know, this is kind of like the closest thing to, uh, dinosaurs, um, you know, that we had left at least, at least from my perspective, then, you know, a lizard looked kind of like a dinosaur. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly when it started, but it goes back a very long ways with me. And, um, I'm always, I've always been kind of doing, you know, if I'm, I do a lot of hunting and fishing, but I'm never not herping to, uh, you know, you kind of always keep your eyes open and try and take in everything while you're out there, you know, being a naturalist definitely adds to those experiences. Yeah. I'd say that it's, so, you yeah. know, I think it's, you know, it's probably, it's pretty much the same for me. I mean, I consider myself an overall naturalist and my whole life. I've been like that, like you said, hunting and fishing, looking for reptiles. And when I'm out looking for reptiles, I'm, you know, looking at, deer sign or bear sign and when i'm out yeah hunting, yeah I'm, exactly i'm looking at you know habitat or finding salamanders just kind of all one and the same and i, I find all, both activities much more re rewarding in that regard when you kind of think of it all as one one thing you know yeah yeah exactly um you know I've, there's been a lot of you know times when uh me and a friend are like stalking pigs in the swamps is chicksaw hatchy or something and I stop and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm going to turn this log and see if there's a marbled salamander under it or something, you know? And, um, also when I'm out looking for salamanders, I'm kind of scouting wood duck holes. <laughs> so, you know, it, yeah. it kind of all goes <laughs> together. And I think people get a lot more out of it if they, if they learned more about the world around them. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and you may face some of this too, but I've always said, and I've said on this podcast before, like oftentimes, like, I feel like, I'm in this interesting place because I care about all these things, which means I care a lot about snakes and I care a lot about hunting and fishing too. But oftentimes I'm generalizing here, but oftentimes the hunting and fishing crowd doesn't like the snakes. And then oftentimes the snake yeah. crowd doesn't like the hunting <laughs> and fishing. So it's a very interesting place to kind of reside. In yeah. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, they, um, the, you know, the, the hunting and fishing crowd, uh, you know, like if you're on some of these Facebook groups and stuff, um, 
someone will post a picture with like a timber rattler they killed while they were hunting in the mountains or something. And, you know, and they might get like a, a negative comment about that or someone asking them why they did that. And, um, inevitably one of the responses is all these bunny huggers and liberals ruining this group, you know, and it's like, it's not political. It's just, you know, there's some things that maybe we, you know, respect a little more and and that we think you shouldn't kill, you know, and, um, it's, I think a lot of people just don't understand that they're not mutually exclusive. You can, you can like, you know, snakes and songbirds and all this other, you know, stuff that we don't shoot or eat or anything and, and still, um, appreciate, you know, hunting and, uh, you know, both, both have a place, uh, and they can go together. And, um, I wish more people would, would kind of understand that. Yeah. I often, you know, sometimes I get the question about, you know, well, you hunt all these other things and, you know, but you're against killing rattlesnakes for, for example. And, and, you know, what I always come back to is there's a big difference in that, you know, so if you take a white tailed deer here in Georgia, we're managing them based on science to maintain, maintain a sustainable Mm -hmm. population that allows for harvest and, wildlife watching and healthy forests and all these values. But like the way we, I want to call it hunting snakes, but the way we kill snakes is indiscriminate. And so if you were to take like, say black bears in the mountains where I live and I was to tell you, well, I'm going to kill every black bear I see any time of year, day, night, anything, you know, Mm -hmm. people would be, you know, really upset about that. So the point I'm getting at is that we're not at a point where we could even consider you know, uh, uh, harvest killing rattlesnakes because we don't understand that science that would be required to have this type of like sustainable take. And we actually did a podcast episode. Uh, it's probably a year ago now, but we did it with the the uh, rattlesnake biologist uh, in Pennsylvania, you know, working with the state there and mm. talked all about their hunting program for snakes. And it was fascinating because it's really the primary tool they use to to just recover and now maintain arguably some of the, the best timber rattlesnake populations in the country. But again, it's a science-based sustainable approach. It's not an approach that is just focused on killing every snake. But anyways, we are way off on a tangent. It's an interesting tangent, but I'm going to bring us back around. So, so you, uh, so you grew up kind of just, as a naturalist, you know, out in the woods, looking for frogs, fishing, doing all of this stuff. And then, uh, you know, what was the point that you realized like, Oh, I could, I could make a career out of this. This is something that, that I could actually do for a living. Did that happen? Like when you hit college or did you know, well before then? Yeah. I mean, I learned what a herpetologist was pretty early on. I remember going to a career day and like, I don't know, fifth grade dressed as what I thought a herpetologist was. Um, and, uh, which is basically like khaki shorts and yeah, yeah. yeah, Kind (laughs) of, I mean, this was a little bit before Steve Irwin, but I don't, I don't know where I got that impression. Um, but you know, like, and th- but I didn't think that that was something I would ever really do. And actually going into college, well into college, I was convinced I was going to do uh, fisheries management. Mm-hmm. And um, then, and where did you, where you know, you somewhere along the way. So I, s- I actually started at Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College 
in, in Tifton, Georgia, doing at the time they only had a two year tech degree. And uh, I started there and um, later transferred to University of Georgia and got a bachelor's and then to Western Carolina University for grad school. But it was probably when I was at ABAC as a sophomore. Um, I actually stayed a little longer. I actually made a, a two two year degree take three and a half years, not because I was that terrible of a student, but but, but I went ahead and did all my uh, core curriculum classes to transfer while I was there too, because it's cheaper. <laughs> and um, yeah. somewhere along the way in there is when I uh, started meeting uh, people, uh, herpetologists, you know, I, um, that's when I first heard about Whit Gibbons. Uh, William Moore, who taught at ABAC, was, was telling me about uh, wit and, uh, meeting him and stuff. And I learned about Savannah Riverside. And, um, <clears throat> so by the time I transferred to UGA, I knew that there was at least a, some number of professionals in the field. And that meant that there were some jobs that might be available. And, um, I took herpetology at UGA with John Mayers and, uh, he took us to, uh, Sea Park in Chattanooga. That was in 2007, I believe. And, uh, that's the first place I met John, uh, and, um, keeping up with John and go, I actually wound up going to that conference most years, um, through, through now. And, uh, John Jensen, John Jensen, John Jensen. Yeah. So I was, I was in John Mayer's herpetology class at the time and, and he, uh, let us know about this conference and, and took some of us up and even the undergrads, you know, some of us went and that's that, that conference through that conference is how I got to know John originally, John Jensen. And, um, yeah, we just developed a relationship and still at this point, I wasn't sure I would be a herpetologist, but I, I was pretty confident I would, I would, uh, be a wildlife biologist of some kind somewhere. Uh, my, my goal was actually, um, by the time I got to Western Carolina university, I loved the mountains so much. I was convinced I was going to stay in the mountains and, mm-hmm. uh, it, that didn't, you know, it didn't pan out that way, but, um, around the time I graduated or shortly after I from, from Western Carolina university for grad school, you know, I was looking for a job and there was a, uh, just a temporary tech position open with DNR here in Georgia to do uh, stream fish sampling. And I had gotten opportunities to do that some in North Carolina. And uh, I took that job. It was just a, uh, like a six month temporary position in 2012. And um, then I found out that ABAC was hiring a faculty member for wildlife and um, I ended up getting a job there teaching. So I actually kind of went circled back around, went all the way up to the mountains and then back through Athens, lived there again for a while and then back to Tifton. So I kind of was like a yo-yo things keep pulling me back to Tifton. (laughs) And um, I taught there. I actually got a chance to teach herpetology a a few times while I was there. Um, I taught there for about six years and then I found out that uh, John was retiring and um, I had a couple biologists call me and encourage me to apply. I didn't think that I would get an interview, much less get the job, but I applied and got an interview. And um, yeah, eventually 
got John's old job. And so still here we are, you know, two and a half, three years later, and people still call me the new John Jensen. Um, yeah. So the job that I never thought I would get, (laughs) you know, I wound up with like what I wanted being what I wanted to be from the time I was, I don't know, eight years old or something. Um, (laughs) you know, that doesn't happen for many people, but I, I finally did get a chance to get there and see what it's like. Yeah, that's great. What a, what a, incredible uh, trajectory and a couple of things I wanted to kind of pull out there and then we'll, we'll move into talking about rattlesnakes and roundups and all of that. But uh, first thing I would just make a plug for, for ABAC, you know, you've done, you've been there in different roles and um, you know, a lot of people listen to this probably have not heard about it, but uh, to me, it's, it's right. one of the stronger kind of, you know, agricultural, if you're interested in wildlife or forestry or fisheries or anything like that, it's a rapidly uh, kind of growing and improving program. And, and, you know, actually a lot of the people we end up hiring now at Orien have some connection uh, to ABAC. You know, they, ha- they have a big focus on prescribed mm-hmm. fire and, and other things that are real important to the longleaf ecosystem. So just a plug for that school. Yeah. But then uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you was um, just go back to your graduate work up here in the mountains. So how did you end up uh, at Western? Is that something you, you were applying broadly to schools or was it a connection that, that, that got you in there? It, it was the first and only grad school I applied to. <laughs> um, I, I was actually, I had a period of time in between graduating with my bachelor's at Warnell and uh, actually starting grad school, I worked at a aquarium store for like a year and a half or two years, just slinging mm-hmm. fish and fish tanks. And, um, <laughs> I, I, I guess I, you know, I started thinking, well, I need to do something with this degree. I just got, I need to go somewhere and, and continue on. And so I talked to John Mayers and, um, you know, I was really into salamanders. I'm still into salamanders. That's probably my, actually my, my, sort of favorite group, I guess, of herps. And um, he said, well, you know, you should, uh, you should talk to uh, Joe Peshman at Western Carolina University. And so I actually made a trip up there one weekend and just, you know, I just emailed Joe and asked him if we could talk. And so I went up there and visited the campus and got a chance to talk with him. And, um, you know, it, Joe was really good about, he said, you know, here's what I do. Here's what most of my students work on. But honestly, if you're into, you know, whatever you're interested in, if it kind of falls within these general sideboards of kind of herpetology and ecology, you know, feel free to to work on that. And so, um, and I, of course, I love the campus. I mean, the campus is beautiful. Uh, it's really nice if, you know, if someone's out there looking for a place to get a good education and live in a beautiful place. Uh, Western Carolina university is definitely a great option. Um, but yeah, I, I applied, uh, I took the GRE and, um, applied and, uh, was accepted and, and it just kind of went from there, but I, I hadn't even heard of Western until John had, had mentioned it to me. And now I know that there's actually been a long history of salamander work there through, uh, Dick Bruce, um, yeah. who apparently still hasn't seen the salamander that he is, uh, his name has been bestowed upon in North Georgia, you know, the patch nose salamander. I don't think he's yeah. even seen one yet. Um, but yeah, so that, that's how I wound up there. And then we took a 
field trip to Savannah River site with the herpetology class at Western. And um, I found my first dwarf water dog and they were just fascinating to me and looking into it. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, research really that had been done at all on that animal. And so I was like, hey, Joe, can, uh, you know, what about this? And so I was going to do kind of an ecology project on on uh, those. And he said, go for it. So I ended up go moving to North Carolina <laughs> for grad school, but then picking an animal that doesn't live anywhere close to there. Uh, and so I, I did a lot of uh, my work around Savannah River site and um, some nearby areas in South Carolina. Um, gotcha. And so dwarf yeah, water so, dog, I, mean, I don't know that much about them. T- tell us a little bit about that animal yeah so most people don't uh you know most people have never even seen one or heard of one but they're uh you know an aquatic salamander they're kind of medium size you know you the, the adults can get six or seven inches long and um one, one thing that's kind of interesting about nectaris is that uh there's a lot of activity and most most of the sightings most of the activity and the time that they're easiest to find is actually in the middle of winter and uh you know, one question that, or one hypothesis, I guess, people have had is that that's because of predator avoidance, that they avoid being active and moving around in the summer because that's when predatory fish are more active and feeding. Uh, and that's, a, you know, basically a predate, predation avoidance um, technique. And so it's true that they're hard to find in the summer, but it turns out that Probably what is actually driving that activity is leaf pack ecology and kind of the phenology of um, leaf packs developing and uh, macroinvertebrate communities developing in those leaf packs. And there was a much stronger correlation or there was a very strong correlation, I guess, with um, sort of this interaction between um, flow rates in the stream uh, when you have these kind of flooding events that wash a lot of leaves down into the streams and things like that. And, um, and then the presence of insects, uh, and, and other invertebrates in those leaf packs. And so that's probably actually what, what's driving that activity pattern, at least in our Southern water dogs. Um, do we know any, do you have so, any yeah, yeah, snakes that feed on the water dogs? Um, you know, I, I don't know for sure. I am certain that a water snake at some point has eaten one. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, you know, they're, they are scarce in, in the time of year when snakes would tend to be more active. And so, I, you know, I don't know if they interact a whole lot or not. I, I'm sure at some point, you know, water snakes poking around in an undercut bank has, has picked one up. But there aren't very many records of predators for dwarf water dogs. Hmm. just want to take a quick break and uh, tell you guys that snakes are one of the most persecuted groups of animals in the world. Unfortunately, most snakes that encounter people end up dead, but the Orient Society is dedicated to changing that. Go to www.orian.org to learn more and join the effort to stop the persecution. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but I, um, I also did my master's degree on salamanders and, uh, 
Uh, I didn't realize that. I just assumed it was rattlesnakes. <laughs> no, I did my PhD on rattlesnakes and, you know, some postdoc work on rattlesnakes. But um, but no, my master's was on uh, marble salamanders uh, up north in these okay. pool ecosystems. So, um, so, yeah, I would have to, if we're talking favorite groups, I mean, mine's obviously snakes and, and venomous snakes in particular. But um, but second to snakes, for me, it's, it's salamanders. I just... I love salamanders and I live in, you know, the heart of salamander diversity in the world. So it's just like yeah. a great place yeah. to be in that regard. Um, okay. Well, so you end up, um, you know, getting the the state herpetologist position, John Jensen's uh, old position and, and people will, people will know John or recognize John when we talk about him. Cause he will be, uh, you know, they will have heard him in the episode just prior to, to yours. So, um, that, that's kind of a good lead into yours. But uh, so you're now the, the state herpetologist in Georgia. So what does your role as, as the state herpetologist in the state, what does that entail? Um, well, I'll, it's a lot different than I thought it would be. It's certainly not just critter catching. <laughs> um, we work off of mo most herpetologists work off of state wildlife grants. And so the federal um, government has a, a grants program states can apply for uh, to help them enact their um, uh, state wildlife action plans or swaps as we call them. And so they give you this state wildlife grant or SWIG and um, that's the grant that I mostly work off of. And it can, you know, really dictates what we, where our focus lies. Um, so probably 90% of what I do or spend time on can be found in our state wildlife action plan, uh, which is on our, our website, the DNR website. Uh, if anybody's interested in looking at it, I encourage you to. There's a lot of good information there that gives you an idea what the priorities are in each state. Um but, you know, we have a list of species of uh, conservation need in the swap, and there's you know quite a number of herps on that list. And so that, you know, that's where my focus lies is on the species in Georgia that are of the greatest conservation need. And sometimes that need is um, sort of data deficiency. We don't we don't really know a lot about them or their distributions and things like that. And so uh, just kind of collecting records and doing surveys. Uh, is part of that. Uh, and then some of them actually have some active management needs. So, you know, we have the Gopher Tortoise Conservation Initiative, which we do a lot of work for, um, comprised of, you know, habitat management and sort of trying to mitigate impacts of like solar developments and things like that. That's that's something that comes up a lot. Uh, actually learned of, you know, another solar development just the other day that's like 1,200 acres um, and has tortoises and things like that on it. Um, yeah, I think people would be surprised to to know, you know, if they don't live down here, that Georgia is one of the top uh, solar development states in the country yeah. these days. It's a huge yeah, it's it's like a gold rush. Um, they, you know, there there's, and you know, the thing is, if you took a map of South Georgia and threw a dart at it, and I'm uh, Matt, I got to give Matt Elliott a credit for this analogy, but um. If you took a map of South Georgia on your wall and threw a dart at it, maybe 5% of the time it would land on a population of gopher tortoises. 
Um, they, they seem like they're everywhere maybe when you're driving around, but really um, viable populations are pretty far apart. You know, the ones you see on the roadsides and things like that are just, uh, you know, displaced animals or animals that have lost habitat elsewhere and have moved to the roadside. If you walked in the woods, there'd be very few. Well, it turns out probably 80% of the time when these solar developers throw a dart at a map, on where to put their solar development, it lands on a population of tortoises. And I, I think there's some interaction between um, the types of sites that are attractive to both. So tortoises like really poor sandy soil, um, kind of low nutrient content areas, um, obviously very dry places, you know, solar developers looking for cheap land um, that's yeah. relatively land that's flat. A lot of timber, those types of things. It doesn't have yeah, a lot of value. Yeah, exactly. In the right. It's not productive from a farming standpoint. It's never been farmed, really. It's not even all that productive from a timber standpoint. Um, and so it's it's a, a cheaper place to get a lease. You know, to lease a stumped ag field would probably cost them more in some cases. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, that that's a, that's a really big conservation challenge right now for us is dealing with that solar development and also some some mining that's going on titanium mines and things like that yeah people um, might think i think it's strange to think of solar development as a conservation issue that we're dealing with but you know i mean obviously there's trade-offs there it's you know carbon free type energy but at the same time when you do a lot of those types of things but at like industrial scales and then you, like here in Georgia, overlay it on arguably one of our most important species for entire ecosystems. Um, it, it can become a real conservation challenge dealing with the solar industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, the footprint of solar just on an industrial scale has to be so large compared to so many other energy types. It's, you know, siting, you know, where you place those facilities is is crucial. And um, we actually have a solar siting tool um, that's available. Um, I'm not sure how much it's been implemented yet, but it can help some of these companies select sites where there will be fewer conflicts with things like tortoises. Um, yeah. You know, you compare, you know, a solar a solar facility, you know, might take up hundreds or thousands of acres. And all of that usually gets graded and pretty much everything that's there is is gone to do that. You know, compare that yeah. to the footprint of something like, say, a nuclear facility. You know, some of the buffer lands around these nuclear facilities are actually some really great habitat for things. And so, um, you know, one type of energy has, you know, it's... It, the, the, I guess the perspective on it, you know, is that it's it's cleaner, um, you know, less carbon involved, but there are costs, environmental costs associated with like solar compared to some other types that aren't um, they aren't well known to the public. I'll put it that way. People's perceptions don't always match what's happening on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I may lose some listeners over this, but I am a, I'm in a general sense I'm, I'm kind of a fan of nuclear the concept that you get so much energy from something so small in such a small footprint there are obvious issues with nuclear but 
you know, I just feel like that's a, something we should be researching in depth to, to do that even better and deal with those, those negative aspects yeah. of it. But anyways, yeah. we're, we're on, yeah. on a tangent again. Let's, so if we get back to, you know, your position in general as a state herpetologist, um, what would you say are some of your biggest priorities uh, that you end up spending the most time on these days? You already mentioned the gopher tortoise. Are there others that, right. that you end up working on quite a bit in the state? Yeah. Um, I'd say the next thing that I'd spend a lot of time on is, uh, specifically gopher frogs. That that's a, a really big one We're we're just kind of wrapping up those activities for the year now. Um, but that's, you know, I don't know what percentage of my time, but a good bit of it. We have, um, partners at university of Georgia, you know, John Mayers and his crew, and then, um, warm Springs national fish hatchery. And, uh, also the Amphibian Foundation, and then as of this year, ABAC and the Gaskins Forest Education Center uh, down near Tifton and Alapaha, uh, they help us ra- raise gopher frogs. So we'll collect eggs in the spring or winter, and um, those eggs are then raised all the way to metamorphosis in captivity to try and get them through the period of their life as a tadpole when they would experience the highest mortality. And then if we release the metamorphs, at new sites, uh, hopefully we can start new populations of gopher frogs or restore uh, extirpated populations. Uh, that that that's a big project that we work on a lot, and we do some habitat management work for that too, as well as you know um, head starting. So things like uh, burning wetlands, you know, that's something we hadn't really focused on a lot in the past, but uh, we're trying to pay special attention to, at least at some sites, to keep those wetlands viable habitat for things like gopher frogs and flatwood salamanders and um, tiger salamanders and things like that. Um, You know, so gopher frogs are a big one. And then, you know, indigo snakes, I um, would be a really big one for me, but thankfully the Orient Society does a lot of that field work for us. Uh, we do have some people that do some field surveys, but um, we, we contract with the Orient Society to do um, indigo surveys each year. And so they help us monitor those populations and, and also produce some other uh, products from that, you know, habitat models and occupancy and things like that. Um, so you know, the common theme here is a lot of the things I work on are in the coastal plain. Uh, sort of longleaf, sandhill associated uh, types, you know, species. Uh, we do have other herpetologists, you know, people, you know, they, you know, if, if I say I'm the state herpetologist, um, that's, that's maybe an oversimplification. We actually have a few different herpetologists. So we have a gopher tortoise biologist. We're actually interviewing for that position next week. Um, and then, um, we have a, a herpetologist, uh, Thomas Floyd, that works mo- mostly in the mountains because, um, you know, he, he does things like hellbender uh, surveys and uh, bog turtles and some other freshwater turtles and s- some salamanders. So he, he kind of tends to focus more in the northern half of the state. And I, I tend to wind up working in the southern half of the state a lot. Um you know, another thing I do a lot of that isn't necessarily related directly to any species is outreach events um, of various types, including these rattlesnake festivals um, and also some other smaller events. Uh, we, 
we help out with those a lot. Uh, Linda May is our outreach and education coordinator, and she uh, sometimes hits me up to come come out with her and and help with some of these bigger outreach events that she does. And um, yeah, I'm always doing something different. <laughs> you know, it kind of moves around. It's a moving target, but yeah, those are a few of the big things. Great. And that's a good lead in, you know, the fact that you're working in the coastal plain and, and you do a lot of outreach, you know, links back to these roundups and their transitions uh, to, to festivals. So let's, let's get into that in a little more depth. So first of all, um, you know, I'm having all the guests kind of describe from their perspective, what is a historic rattlesnake roundup in the Southeast? Not so much the festival, we'll talk about those as well, but you know, the old model of the roundup, what was that? Yeah, there's, so they go back uh, decades. They aren't, uh, as far as I know, in Georgia, they're not really an ancient tradition. I think some people think that they go back, you know, hundreds of years or something, but most of these roundups were only started maybe in like the fifties and sixties. And it, the goal was, I guess there were two goals uh, that most people had one, uh, one I've heard from Wiggum specifically is that, uh, there was a long history of quail hunting in that area. There's a lot of quail plantations and, um, you know, if, for listeners that don't, don't know, uh, one big component of quail hunting is using dogs. Uh, you use dogs to find the quail and, and show you where they're at. And then sometimes to kind of flush the quail out. And, um, these dogs sometimes get bit by rattlesnakes. You know, you can picture a, a dog out in the piney woods sticking its nose around sniffing and um, it's not uh, unheard of for these dogs to occasionally be bitten by snakes. And they wanted to reduce the population of rattlesnakes in the area, um, partly because some dogs were getting bitten and they were kind of worried about hunters being bitten too, although that was much, much more rare. Um and so that that was one component. And then another thing that ended up coming of that is sort of the commercial component um, where you're selling the snakes for, you know, meat or skins or uh, selling the venom for various things, you know, stuff like that. And so there's kind of this uh, um, uh, profit driven component to it as well. Um, and then I think. Along with the the kind of that sort of monetary value came kind of a, a community fundraiser type um, value. So these these clubs that run the the festivals or roundups at the time, um, this was a major uh, source of of income each year. You know, this is where these clubs get a lot of the funds that they use for uh, community outreach and and um, community assistance and helping, you know, fund other events they do and things like that. And so it was a, it was a major source of revenue for these community clubs. Um, yeah, we talked a lot about it, and so that, that's, Jensen, but, um, you know, it's important for everyone to know these are not just, uh, just a, only about rattlesnakes, these roundups, you know, they were typically much bigger things. They're like any festival that you might imagine going to, right. You've got, them have rides and people are eating funnel cakes and there's all kinds of <laughs> yeah. vendors yeah. off products. They're a big deal beyond the rattlesnakes themselves. 
Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, there's thousands of people that come to these things. And I mean, to me, the funnel cakes are the best part. The, the rattlesnakes <laughs> are kind of secondary to that, but, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there is a lot of fun stuff at these events and they do a, the, the clubs that run them do a lot of good work. Uh, but you know, yeah, there's, there's kind of the, unfortunately they were rattlesnake roundups for a long time. And so kind of the, the goal, I guess, is to have these festivals in such a way that they still get to do all of that fun stuff and they still get to have their fundraiser and all of that, but it's not damaging to rattlesnake populations anymore. That's the the challenge. And that's where we yeah, tried to go with it. In the last episode, we talked a lot about that history with John and in the and we talked about the Kind of in recent history, there were three primary roundups being Claxton, Fitzgerald, and Wiggum. And uh, we talked in depth about, um, one, kind of how the the transition of these roundups, um, you know, happened and, you know, how that was initiated by George DNR. And then Mm -hmm. we talked about Fitzgerald and how that transitioned. And we talked about Claxton as well, because both of those were kind of in his tenure in the, in the role that, that you have now. Um, but the right. last one to transition uh, is Wiggum. And it's, it's the one I know the least about. Um, so it'd be good if, if, if you don't mind, maybe talk to us a little bit about the Wiggum roundup, um, what it was like as a roundup, and then kind of that whole transition process and, and where they sit today. Yeah. So, um, you know, Wiggum was, was still a, a true roundup until, uh, this year, this spring. So they, they were the last, um, traditional rattlesnake roundup left in Georgia. And, um, you know, talks with us hadn't really gone anywhere for, you know, over a decade, but, um, you know, we have some some friends and some partners at uh, like Quail Forever, for instance, that works with a lot of those landowners and knew of them, um, knew the people in the area and had gone to some of their meetings. And, and essentially, they were able to get them to come back to the table with us. And uh, so me and and um, our uh, our section chief, John Ambrose, actually went down to one of their meetings. Um, or Actually, I went to two of them. And uh, just talk to them about kind of the vision we had, um, you know, what we what we could provide uh, if they would be willing to transition from a, a roundup to more of a festival. And, um, you know, kind of kind of went from there. So that that goes back. You know, that's been a couple of years now that 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 started. And um, <clears throat> there were there were some 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 of the older members, you know, were were. Uh, I guess skeptical, but, but everyone I've really talked to with that, that club's been very, uh, very kind, very appreciative. Um, you know, they, they've been really great partners. And so this year, um, after, you know, COVID kind of, I came on to DNR in fall of 2019 Well, in winter of 2019 of 2020 COVID started. And so I still haven't had a completely normal year with DNR yet. Um, so that was kind of shuffling things around and some festivals were being canceled and stuff. 
but but finally this year they got an opportunity to do it and and um, it seemed like it went really well to me um it was uh you know that we didn't round up any snakes in the past they rounded up snakes but it had gotten to where you know there weren't very many snakes being collected and there that's probably twofold uh reasons for that there's you know one there just weren't as many snakes around and um it's just harder and harder to find diamondbacks in a lot of places in particular there in southwest georgia north florida wherever they were getting snakes from uh, and also there weren't as many snake hunters interested in that anymore. Basically the, the interest in collecting rattlesnakes had dwindled. Um, I guess people realized it was a very time consuming thing. They didn't make that much money. And, um, it's also a very risky thing. You know, if you, there's, you're going out and interacting with a, an animal that could potentially kill you, uh, certainly put you in the hospital. And if it's, maybe it's not worth three or $4 a foot to do that. And so, you know, the, the rattlesnake component of the roundup had already dwindled quite a bit. I mean, I, I don't remember exactly how many they had at the last roundup, but I, I want to say it was maybe in the teens of animals that were collected and made it to the roundup. Um, and so we told them basically, if you know, tell you what, if you won't do that and you know we aren't selling wildlife parts or anything um along those lines we could probably provide that many snakes or more for the festival um it just wouldn't be a pit full of rattlesnakes um and so we they you know they were willing to try that and we we showed up i actually counted i'm trying to think i counted up how many snakes we had at that festival and i think it was 60 something between us and our partners, you know, we had a lot of other people coming and helping uh, bring animals to display it at the festival. So I think there were 60 some odd snakes and they weren't all rattlesnakes. I mean, we had some rattlesnakes there. There were also some other venomous snakes, copperheads and cottonmouths and things. And, um, and also a lot of native venom, uh, non-venomous snakes as well. So it was really more of an educational event um, and that's kind of the goal is to get these things to have a more educational focus on our native wildlife and a conservation focus rather than this, um, you know, sort of um, market collecting and, and sort of persecution type focus that would have been present in the past. Um, so yeah, so I think, think that one went really well. Spring, yeah, I was going to say, do you think this the festival this spring went well? I mean, did they have good attendance and people you think had a good experience, people attending? Yeah, I think so. You know, there's um, the Rattlesnake Conservancy actually kind of went around and interviewed people at the festival and they made a really good short film kind of documenting the public's experience there and describing what was going on. And uh, I encourage people to look that up if they can. Um really gives you a good feel of what's going on at the event. But yeah, I think attendance was, was um, comparable to what they've had in the past. I don't know exactly what the numbers were. Um, I want to say it was like 7,000 something people, but I don't, I don't remember exactly. Um, you know, we had a steady crowd coming through all day and um, all the shows um, went really well. The, the stage shows. So some people, you know, Different than in the past, those stage shows used to just be rattlesnake focused. People were, you know, milking them or um, doing various 
you know, stunts or things with rattlesnakes. And this year, the the stage shows had a more variable focus. So some of them were snake related. We had uh, Jason Clark came and did some some of his really entertaining uh, shows for people there. And then we also had some native plant talks and some other animals uh, show up. We you know we had uh, raptors there, and um, it was more of a broad wildlife education focus. And I, I think people enjoyed that. So um, I, I would say Wiggum is a great model for, um, you know, what can be um, folk, you know, what, what can happen when we work together on these things. And, um, you know, and we're going to continue to to try and uh, you just make the festival better as we go along. If there's, you know, things we think we could do better, then we'll try and improve it next year. So it's kind of an evolving um, process to, you know, make everybody happy that's involved. That's that's the goal is have everybody get most of what they want. And um, I think we were pretty successful at doing that with Wiggum. So do you see any challenges going forward with Wiggum in terms of being able to maintain a successful festival where they're not actually rounding up and, and killing large numbers of snakes? Um, not particularly. Um, you know, it, I think that the biggest challenge is probably something that none of us can really control. And that's sort of the shifting um, public sort of demographics and, and things like that. Basically, you know, these, these festivals are, um, change the, the interest in them is changing. It's hard to keep people coming back. And, um, if, if participation dwindles in these types of things, I think it's some of that's probably going to be just because, you know, unfortunately the, the public often isn't as interested in going outside and doing, uh, you know, interacting with other large groups of people and things no more, you know, we've gotten kind of used to, especially over the last couple of years, kind of staying in our house and entertaining ourselves with things in the home or, you know, and it's, um, I think, you know, that's going to be the challenge is as, you know, like right now we're meeting virtually, whereas in the past I would have to come to Clayton or we'd have to meet somewhere and do this. Now we can just sit in our, our homes or our offices and, and do this same interview. And so the more and more common that becomes the less and less people are going to want to go out. And um, so that's the challenge is keeping people interested, keeping it lively, keeping it fun and keeping people wanting to come back. Thank you for listening to snake talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Gotcha. Well, that's a, a fascinating story about Wiggum, and, and I'm glad you you had so, so much success there. Last thing on Roundups, and I have one last topic I want to talk about with venomous snakes in Georgia, but mm-hmm. um, on Roundups, I know it's not necessarily in your, in your purview, but uh, so, you know, we've talked about, you know, we've had the three, I guess, recent history Roundups in Georgia now transition. So we 
in the southeast region of the United States, we only have one remaining roundup. It's it's not too, too far from Wiggum. It's um, across the line right. over in Alabama in a place called Op. And I'm just curious, uh, do you know anything about what's going on with Op? Is there any, um, you know, what's the status of that roundup? Is there any interest by the state or other people um, over in Alabama to, to look at maybe a similar model to what we've implemented here in Georgia? Um, I don't know a whole lot of details about op. I did see, you know, some footage of the event from, uh, I guess it was last year or early this year. Um, I know that that's something that, that, uh, Alabama DC and R would like to change. I just, I don't know. Um, yeah, I couldn't tell you where they're at on that. If there's any productive talks going on or, or anything like that. I just, I just don't really know. Other than to say, I think um, looking at the stands, at, you know, from the footage, there's not great participation at that festival. And, you know, really, it's it's almost in their interest um, from just a participation standpoint to, to try and change something. Um, I don't think the public has the the appetite for some of the, you know, gruesomeness. And, and, um, you know, mistreatment of animals now that they used to, and even rattlesnakes, it's kind of changing. And I think, I think these, these roundups are eventually going to, um, be forced into some sort of change, um, whether they want to or not with time. Um, yeah, but I, I couldn't comment on specifically where they're at with that roundup. Great. Well, I'll have to, maybe at some point we'll get somebody from Alabama uh, on the podcast. Yeah. Talk a little bit yeah. About it. So um, last topic I want to cover, you know, talking to John, we mentioned, uh, you know, basically how venomous native venomous snakes are handled or managed uh, in the state of Georgia and that they're kind of on this list of animals that have absolutely no regulation around them. Whereas, you know, say you're, you're, native non-venomous snakes are it technically would be illegal to to kill you know something like a rat snake or whatever it might be but um in right. georgia it's perfectly legal uh to kill any of the venomous any of the six venomous snakes that we have you know anywhere private public land and you know I, i've had this idea for for a long time and and it sounds like you guys might be thinking along the same lines, but my idea as a good first step in Georgia would be to, to, you know, move to the point of, you know, having regulation around our venomous snakes, at least on our public lands. So being like our national forests and our state wildlife management areas where you couldn't just indiscriminately kill venomous snakes on the public lands, but, you know, you could keep that uh, you know, you could keep that open on private land. It just seems like a good in between. So people aren't going into say wild places where the snakes live and, and killing all these venomous snakes. There's no need anymore to harvest animals for roundups. So there's no need for people to go out in public land and harvest these snakes to bring to the roundups. Um, but it still gives people the freedom if, you know, if a snake's in their backyard and they're afraid, um, you know, it just seems like a good kind of first step 
and again, I, I will state to everybody that that's my opinion. I'm, um, that's not, you know, the opinion of, of DNR necessarily. That's just, I think would be a good, um, logical step towards, you know, conserving some of our venomous snakes and some of our venomous snakes, you know, certainly Eastern diamondbacks, uh, possibly timber rattlesnakes, certainly in the Piedmont, maybe to some degree in the mountains, um, you know, they're, they've been declining and, and could use some level of management and conservation. So anyways, I, I'm just kind of speaking generally about that, that thought I've had, but, um, you know, what's going on, you know, is DNR thinking about these types of things? How is DNR thinking about the future of venomous snakes in the state of Georgia? Right. So the, you know, y'all may have brought this up before with John, but the, the, you know, the list of animals that some people call them the unlucky 13, it was the unlucky 14 when it included freshwater turtles, um, are a, a groups of animals that you can do anything you want with pretty much. You can kill them or collect them anywhere, anytime. Um, and venomous snakes or what the law calls poisonous snakes are on that list along with, you know, fiddler crabs and crayfish and spring lizards and things like that. Um, so, you know, we, we do see sometimes people collecting snakes on WMAs, venomous snakes for things like roundups or uh, other, other commercial uses. And, um, you know, something a few of us have been talking about and, and, you know, we would possibly try to do this through regulations because, you know, to, to completely change that, um, status of venomous snakes for, you know, to, to give them protection would take a law to undo a law uh, or modify a law. And that's very difficult. Um, but we do have, um, some regulatory power in particular with regards to our WMAs. And so, like you said, you know, starting there is, is something we might be able to do something about. And so we've got you know, we're, we're working on basically something to regulate commercial use of any animals, plants and wildlife on WMAs. So, you know, we have other issues with the commercial use like, you know, uh, palmetto berry pickers and, um, you know, sometimes people are actually like digging plants and uh, certainly collecting rattlesnakes and things. And so, um, yeah, we're we're you know, working on something that, you know, it would have to get approved by uh, the DNR board before it could actually go into effect. Um, and so that process takes a while. But, um, yeah, we're, we're kind of working towards something like like what you proposed, where at least on our WMAs that we have more control over, we can at least protect snakes there. And then what that would do is, uh, you know, protect them where they have still have habitat where there's still viable populations and where some of these rarer species like diamondbacks still occur. Um, but you know, um, if someone sees a copperhead in their yard, say, and they wanted to kill it, they would still legally be able to do that. It wouldn't stop them from, from doing that. Uh, you know, you and I would probably handle that situation differently, but, um, that would still be an option. Uh, for for private landowners, so you know that that is something we're working on, and and I'm I'm pretty hopeful that um, in the not too distant future we could have um, rattlesnakes and probably all um, wildlife protected from any kind of take, uh, certainly commercial take for commercial use on our WMAs. Yeah, that's great. That's encouraging to hear. 
And I do have that happen quite a bit. I have both copperheads and timber rattlesnakes on my, on my land and see them every year. You know, some years, oftentimes I get copperheads yeah. in particular, you're trying to use my house as a gestation site. And, you know, so, um, you know, we, <laughs> in Georgia, we have, yeah, snakes. I had one, um, Go yeah, ahead, I had one show up at my mom's house actually that was uh it has shown up three times in the same spot and so I went on the third time and sure enough it's a gravid female copperhead look, trying to use the slab of their garage as a gestation site and so um I'm just going to hold on to her for a little while till she gives birth and I'll take those offspring somewhere else and then hopefully after that she'll stay gone for a while if I put her back near uh, where she was found. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's other ways of handling that, um, that I think are better, but you know, it does mean there's some, some risk, you know, I don't average, I don't, I don't, um, encourage the average person to, you know, try to get a copperhead into a bucket, especially a big one. Um, but you know, that's what I I prefer to do. I mean, somebody, if they have a venomous snake at their house, I'm assuming they can call Georgia DNR and, law enforcement or somebody would come out and potentially move a rattlesnake. Um, how would DNR typically handle those yeah. situations? Um, usually. So like if they called the office and it was close, let's say in adjacent County and I had the time I might ride out there, you know, but, but normally we encourage them to contact a, a licensed wildlife uh, operator, a nuisance wildlife operator to come help move that animal. Uh, that's what we normally encourage. Um, if it's if it's outside, you know, it's not in a confined area, like it hasn't gotten into their garage or something. I usually talk to people over the phone. I'm usually able to, uh, first of all, identify the snake. And usually when it's non-venomous, it kind of doesn't go any farther than that. They go, oh, okay, it'll crawl off and that's it. Um, and so probably not, you know, 90 something percent of the time, uh, people are willing to let the snake just stay there if it's not venomous. If it's venomous, you know, um, I usually, and it, it, but it's outside, it's just in their yard. I'll kind of ask them what it's doing. You know, like, is it moving? Is it coiled up next to your house? To try and get an idea of, is the snake just passing through and they can just let it leave? Or is it liable to hang out in the same spot next to their house for a couple of days? And uh, if it's cold up next to their house and looks like it's sitting there, you know, waiting to ambush a mouse or something that comes by, then maybe I'll encourage them to uh, take a water hose and squirt it and see if that can get it to move on. Um, but I'll also present the option of, you know, getting someone that knows what they're doing to come come move it. Uh, and then we get into snake relocation, which is, I don't know, that's something, maybe that's a whole other podcast to talk about. Um what are best yeah, practices done, with that and how that should occur. We, we've done episodes on that with, with uh, experts and talked all about how snakes okay. react, what affects their survival and all of that. And yeah. we talked a little bit about, you know, cause I do a lot of the same thing you're doing, moving snakes out of people's yards up in these mountain counties. And uh, you know, we, we've talked about our strategies for it. Like we do move the snake, but I tell the people, well, I'm going to move them a few hundred yards down the road into the national forest. And, you know, we're not picking up snakes and moving them miles typically. And so we talked, yeah, we've got exactly. Pretty good, pretty good depth on translocation of snakes. Cause it's a really common thing and it's becoming more and more common. 
uh, you know, really across the country. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and it's all well meaning. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's no rule of thumb. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no. I was just saying there's no good rule of thumb, uh, you know, that works for every snake in every situation. That's the, I think, the most important thing to consider with that. I mean, moving them as little as possible, I think, is best. And so, you know, sometimes that's just to the edge of the woods in the yard. And sometimes it may be a few hundred yards is fine. Um, you know, but some people say, oh, don't move them more than a mile. Well, a mile might be another continent for some snakes, you know. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things to consider there. But I, I just try to encourage people to move them as little as possible. Yeah. Well, Daniel, I like to have all of my guests um, go on a little uh, adventure with me. And so let's imagine that you and I are sitting around a, a campfire, uh, you know, at night after a good day of, of say, you know, duck hunting in the morning and looking for snakes in the afternoon and and uh, we're sitting around telling stories, and you're going to tell me your best snake story. <laughs> um, well, uh, I think the best ones are probably reserved for when we're actually sitting around a campfire with a beer <laughs> or something. But, <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, I do remember um, when I was, I was 11 years old. And, uh, at that time, you know, it was like, I guess more acceptable to leave your kids at home alone when they were that age. I don't know if people do that now or not, but I was at home by myself. My parents were at work and the next door neighbor called the house and she said, I've got a rattlesnake in my backyard, in my garden. Can you come get it out? Now, looking back on it, it's kind of strange to call an 11 year old kid to come catch a rattlesnake out of your yard. But uh, I said, sure, I'll come check it out. Uh, we had never seen rattlesnakes where I grew up at that point. I mean, that was, we lived in, you know, I don't know there just weren't, weren't, weren't a lot of rattlesnakes around. There wasn't a lot of habitat. And so I went over there and looked and um, I found it. It had gone into one of the landscaping timbers around the garden and uh, it was a garter snake, uh, maybe 18 inches long. And I said, oh, it's actually just a garter snake, um, but I can I can get it out. And so uh, I actually took a, a water hose and just ran water down in one of the knot holes in the the uh, landscaping timber. And um, I'm sorry, railroad tie, really uh, inside the railroad tie. And uh, the snake came running out. And as it ran out, I just reached down and grabbed it. Now, at this point, I'm 11 years old. I had caught a couple snakes, like rough green snakes and um, brown snakes and things. And, um, of course, they don't bite. Um, and I, I just I don't know why I assume this one wouldn't bite. But uh, basically, uh, as I'm walking out the driveway with this snake to carry it over to the woods, it swings around and bites me on the hand. And, um, you know, it's a small garter snake. It's just a little scratch. It didn't even hurt that much. It just surprised me that that was the first time I ever got bitten by the snake. Well, then Willene, the, the neighbor, she starts freaking out because here she's called the neighbor's kid over who's 11 years old. And he just got bit by a snake. And she's not convinced that it's not venomous. 
And so she called my mom who worked at a hospital and, um, she's like, Daniel got bit by a snake. He said it's harmless, but I'm not sure. And the whole time I'm standing next to her, like, no, it's really, it's harmless. It's fine. And my mom said, well, put him on the phone. And so I told my mom, you know, oh, it's a garter snake. It's harmless. Um, and then, uh, she's like, okay, well, uh, you know, I'll tell her not to worry about it. So anyways, they hang up the phone and then my mom just happened to work. One of her coworkers was from Africa. Uh, I forget exactly where, but somewhere in Africa and, um, growing up there, he, you know, if you get bitten by a snake, there's at least a higher chance that it might be something very dangerous. And so he's like, what, what happened? And, uh, my mom said, eh, my kid got bit by a snake. And he starts freaking out, you know, and my mom had to convince him that no, 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 you know, it's, it's something completely harmless. So anyway, yeah, it was just a lot of freaking out. But I think the funniest part of that story is that my neighbor called an 11 year old kid to come move what she thought was a rattlesnake out of her garden. <laughs> you know, fortunately it wasn't. So. That's when, uh, that's when adults need to listen to kids. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's also, it's always fascinating to me how many myths and misconceptions there are about snakes. And that's probably one of, if not the most common one that any snake you see is venomous when in actuality, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's many more non-venomous snakes in, in most landscapes. So um, anyways, well, that's yep. a, that's a great story. Your first, first snake bite. Well, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the, the conversation, Daniel. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. No problem. And I uh, just wanted to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild. <laughs>